Once again, let me express how grateful I am to be with you in Midland, Texas. I am thankful for the wonderful hospitality and kindness that has been shown to me. We had a day yesterday, in my opinion. Today was an equally blessing day. I was able to uh, rest a little bit and then had a wonderful meal. And I want to thank Sister Karen for fixing that uh, wonderful meal for us. And uh, certainly it was um, very, very tasty. And I've enjoyed the rain as much as any of you, I believe. And I'm grateful for the time to be with, with Mike and Cherie. Uh, we have been friends for, I'm going to say, at least 30 years. And he has always been a, a wonderful blessing to me, and not to me only, but he has blessed my children, and he has been a wonderful asset in helping them. And uh, I was just wondering, um, the three Fs, the daughter that he was referring to, she is an English teacher, and so I can't believe she gave her daddy a grade of an F. So I'm going to have to consult her about this whenever I get home. But uh, bear with me for just another minute because I owe a family, at least two in here, uh, an apology. And it's been long overdue. And that would be our brother Adam and sister Julie. Adam has done a wonderful job leading our singing. But I'm not surprised. For the past several years, we have been associated with one another at uh, Camp Ida. So uh, we record singing. We have a 45-minute singing session every afternoon, or morning it is. And so uh, we, I record it because the singing is just absolutely wonderful. We have 100 and some odd kiddos, adults, we're in a little small uh, room, and so it's really wonderful singing. So I'm listening to it. And I'm listening, and I'm like, what is this noise? And I keep hearing this eek, 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 eek in the recording. And then I go to a ball game with one of my grandkids, and I'm sitting in my chair, rocking in it. And guess what sound I'm hearing? Eek. And Adam and Julie sat there for five days right next to me and did not say a word about my squeaking chair. Now, if they didn't hear it, they probably need to leave here, go home, get an appointment with an ear doctor tomorrow and have their hearing checked because it was driving me crazy listening to it, trying to listen to the songs. And I'm wondering how crazy was I driving you two but I apologize. I will oil my chair before <laughs> this coming June. We are continuing our lessons, living godly in an ungodly world. We have discussed living godly is commanded. Living godly is that which is to be demonstrated as we think about our daily lives, as we think about how we show ourselves out in the community. And yet tonight I want to deal with the subject that is going to be dealing with godly living clarified. Clarified. Now I want you to turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. 
8th chapter, and we're going to look at several thoughts throughout this chapter by way of introduction. And while you're turning, I will just remind you of John's thesis for the book. John's thesis statement for the book is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly did, did and truly Jesus did many miracles or signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these that are recorded are recorded for this purpose, that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing in him you might have eternal life. John wrote to his audience so that they would be absolutely certain about who Jesus is, so then we have these proofs that John is going to give to us, his arguments, if you will, throughout the entirety of the book, proving that Jesus is, in Christ, is indeed the Son of God. Now tonight I want us to think about John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, it had to be one of those days in which Jesus was just extremely busy. We see in the opening verse of this chapter that he's come to uh, the Mount of Olives. And he is going to then, on this occasion, be teaching, and his teaching is interrupted as the Pharisees bring the woman to him that was taken in adultery. And so Jesus is quizzing his, her accusers, I should say, and then as he looks up, then all of the accusers are gone, and Jesus makes his statement when he says, is there no one here to accuse you? And she says, no. And he says, then neither will I. But go your way and what? Sin no more. And then at the end of this context, Jesus is identified by this statement. I am the light of the world. Now, folks, I'd like for you to just for a moment consider this lady. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her except that she was taken in the act of adultery. She was on the verge of having them stone her to death and that was relieved. She was, uh, got away from that punishment. She did not follow through. And so then Jesus says, go your way and sin no more. And then right after that, I am the light of the world. Now, whether the lady was still in earshot and heard that, as she walked away from Jesus, she had to admit, she had to count her blessings that Jesus was there. He saved her physical life, and if she heeded the teachings and instructions that he gave her, he would ultimately save her what? Spiritual life. Go your way and sin no more. Don't be engaged in this anymore. So he was telling her, you're going to have to get your life right. Quit doing the things that you're doing. But he was indeed, for her, the what? The light of the world. There are seven I am statements that we focus on in the Gospel of John, and this is the second of them. Even though the phrase I am occurs numerous times, we focus in on those seven because of the metaphors that follow after. So now notice in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now I'd like you to go with me to verse 24 of John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he. What did he just tell the lady? 
I'm the light of the world. Now he says, if you don't believe that I am he, and when you pick up in verse number 13 and you go through the context that just precedes this section, Jesus is talking about the evidence that I am truth. I am the truth. And now he says, except you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. So Jesus has told the woman at the well, I'm the, or the woman in adultery, I am the light of the world. Now he says, if you don't believe in me, then you're going to die in your sins. Now turn the next page maybe in your Bible as I turn my New Testament because now notice verse 32. And you shall know the truth and the truth will what? Make you free. Now we drop down to verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Now follow Jesus as we go through this chapter. He states to the lady... I'm the light of the world. She fully understood what a blessing it was to have the light of Jesus in her life. To those he contacts in verse 24, he says, unless you believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. But then in verse 32, he comes back and says, but you can know the what? Truth. The truth. And the truth will what? Make you free. And if I make you free, you are free indeed. Now, we go to another passage, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, stay with me on this. Back again, John 8, 12. Who is Jesus? I'm the light of the world. John 8, 24. Except you believe, I am he, you're going to die in your sins. But you can know the truth. The truth can set you free. And if I set you free, then you are free indeed. Because I am whom? God. I am divine. I am. That statement that's referring and carries the, the idea and the biblical precedent of him being eternal. Him being divine, Him being deity. So when Jesus says to the lady, I'm the light of the world, you can be saved from your sins. I'm the one who can set you free. He can do that because He is whom? God. Now I've said all of that to say this. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, we want to notice verses 43 through 45. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it is also with this wicked generation. We leave John chapter 8, and we've come to the conclusion that the light of the world is Jesus who is the divine Son of God. 
we come to Matthew chapter 12, and what assessment does Jesus make concerning the man who has swept his house clean? He has got it in order. We would say to those of us who are Christians, I've come up out of the waters of baptism, and I'm what? I'm as pure as I can be and will ever be again. My house is swept clean. It's in order. But it's also what? Empty. That empty house leaves an opening for what? Things to come back in. And when they come back in, according to Jesus' teaching, it's going to be what? Worse than what it was before. Now Jesus is making these assessments and we're trying to identify clearly just exactly what we ought to be doing. And one of the things I ought to be doing is knowing that Jesus is the remedy. Jesus can set me free from my sin, but he also warns me that whenever I have my life right through obeying him and becoming a Christian, I need to make sure that my house does not stay empty. Now, back to John 8. I know this is kind of circuitous for us, but uh, stay with me if you would, please, because John 8, 44, Jesus makes this assessment, and I've laid this premise, I hope, before you. I'm the light of the world. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. I can set you free. You can know the truth, and if I set you free, you're free indeed. I am the divine son of God. Don't leave your house empty. Fill it with something. Something good and right. Because if you don't, something worse is coming in. And then look at John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus being God in the flesh. Jesus knowing all things. John 2, 25. Not having to be told what is in man. He already knows what's in man. Now he knows exactly who our Father is. And he knows exactly how we are conducting ourselves, how we're living, how we are approaching things of a spiritual nature. And he says, I know clearly who your father is. So this evening I want to talk about godly living and it being clarified in our minds. I will not and cannot ever fool God. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that's what he is also going to reap. I cannot fool God. God knows who my true father is. And I know what Jesus offers. He offers freedom. He offers salvation. He offers that which only he can offer. So now, what am I going to fill my house with? To avoid having a house that's clean and pure and ready and leaving it vacant, leaving it empty. Any of y'all have rental properties? I don't. Probably never will. 
But the reality is people say that a house that's left vacant tends to fall down faster than one that's actually lived in and occupied. Well, folks, is that not true in our spiritual house as well? If I'm leaving an empty, vacant house, what's it going to do? It's going to start declining faster and faster and faster. So what do I need to fill my house with? Number one, fill it with God. Fill your house with God. Godly living is clarified in my life when my life is filled with God. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, we have that monumental statement about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We drop down to verse number 26, and in His image, He created them. God created us in His image. So why would I want to have God in my life? Because number one, he's my creator. He created me. And he created me for his what? For his glory. I am to glorify him. You could take 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, plug it in there in the fact that God is my creator. And as my creator, I ought to be glorifying him. But not only is God my creator, he's also the great planner. Have you ever thought about Genesis 3 and verse 15? Adam and Eve have done those things in the garden. But folks, I want to ask you a question. What do we know that Adam didn't know? Folks, we're very quick to kind of throw Adam under that bus and then run over him a few times because, because of what he and Eve did in the garden and what it ushered into the world. But what did Adam not know? What have you and I got to look at and to study and to learn from that Adam did not have? I have the Bible. I have thousands and thousands of years of human history to look at. I have example after example after example of people who lived lives that were not pleasing to God. Did Adam have any of that? Folks, there were two people on the world in the world at that time. Two. And yet God, because of what happened in the garden, Adam and Eve transgressed God's positive law. That's one of the things they did have. God said of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, do not eat it. They violated that. And when they did, what did they usher into the world? Death. And we have had to deal with that ever since. But now when we think about God, he didn't leave us in that dilemma. He says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, as he's talking to the devil. And he says, you're going to bruise his head, heal, but he's going to crush or bruise your head. And God began to unfold the greatest plan in the history of man. God is the great planner. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need people to plan my life. Who could be better? God is the great planner. 
I need to fill my life with God. He's my creator. He's my planner. But not only that, he is the one who is the greatest giver the world has ever seen. He is not only the greatest giver, he's the greatest lover the world has ever seen. And not only that, he's just not only the greatest giver and lover, but he's the greatest provider. And all of that is to be taken from what verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that no one should what? Perish. No one should be lost. God is the greatest at everything he has ever done. And he's never done anything wrong. And he is the absolute greatest at it. I like to surround myself with good people, don't you? I even like to surround myself with good, uh, great people from time to time. Great people. Why would I not want my house to be full of God? But not only God. My spiritual house needs to be filled up with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We've already established that at least in part from looking at John chapter 8 in that context and we could go to other passages as well and bring that out. But Jesus is the Son of God. And I need to fill my house, my spiritual house with Him so that people might be clear as to whom I'm serving. I'm serving God. And I'm going to do that by them seeing Jesus in my house. Remember Matthew 11, 28 through 30? Let me just stop for just a moment. Your minds are running. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus ushers or extends, I should say, that great invitation. And he ushers us to come to him. I can have Jesus in my house because he has extended the invitation. He wants to be there and he wants me to be there. You know, there's some places I don't think I'll ever be able to go to in this world. I don't ever see myself going into the White House. There's some places that I just, I'm, not, I'm never going to get that invitation or that privilege. Folks, Jesus has stuck out his hand and he says, you come to me. Jesus can fill my house because he's offered and extended the invitation. Now, who are we talking about? Who is inviting us to come to him? The son of God. The light of the world. The one who is able to provide absolute freedom from sin. The one who is indeed God in the flesh. He says, come to me. He extends the invitation. But not only that, Jesus is my Savior. And he's your Savior. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. A passage we mentioned last night. And none other is there salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. Whereby we must be saved. But then, not only that, he is my ransom. 
Have you ever thought about that in light of uh, the fact that Jesus is our ransom? Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. I did not come to be what? Served. But I came to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Folks, I was in essence sold. I was on the block of slavery and I was a slave to what sin and Jesus came and he says I'll pay the price for your freedom he ransomed me he redeemed me he bought me back from whom the devil I think sometimes we need to meditate upon that song that we oftentimes will refer to as a camp song or a kid song. Jesus did indeed pay a debt. He didn't owe. And folks, we owed a debt we could not pay. I need my house full of the redeeming love of Jesus. But not only is he my redeemer and my savior, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except it be by me or through me. But folks, I want you to think about the way. Have you ever thought about the way that Jesus gives us to live? I want you to think about this. The way that Jesus gives us to live is absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Folks, when we are following God, when we're doing the things that God would have us to do, when we are following the way that Jesus has laid out for us to uh, conduct ourselves as Christians to show I am a godly person, then the way I have to travel is wonderful. When I'm following the way of Jesus, I'm right with whom? God. I'm right with God, and folks, that's guaranteed. I'm right with God. Now, I said right, I didn't say what? Perfect. But can I be right with God? 1 John 1, 7, If I walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Folks, that's a wonderful way to live, to be right with God. But not only is it a wonderful way to live, I'm right with God, I'm right with my fellow man, I'm right with myself. Everything that I do, everything that I touch, if I'm walking in the way that Christ has prescribed is going to be wonderful. But not only that, his truth. He is the way and he's the truth. And the truth is absolutely terrific. Folks, when I quoted Genesis 1, verse 1, a little bit earlier, I know that all of you in this room could probably have done the same thing. But the Bible has as its purpose 
this thought. And what would you say the purpose statement of the Bible is? I know all of you from West Side have probably heard it because what I'm fixing to give you is exactly what that man sitting right there quoted 30 years ago. The theme of the Bible is the salvation of man to the glory of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the truth. And that truth is what? Terrific. So we have a wonderful way. We have terrific truth. Or I should say we have uh, the wonderful way, the terrific truth. And then also as we think about the life the life is that which is absolutely beautiful to behold. It is a life that is spent whatever days we have in service to God. And then the next life, what does it hold for us? Things that are indescribable. So as we think about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, don't we want him filling our house? And another thing that Jesus is, though, he is the world's finest accountant. When you think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, it says we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we shall give an account of the things we've done in our body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Jesus is the world's greatest accountant. Nobody's going to slip something by. Nobody's going to get by. Nobody's going to be able to find a loophole and say, no, I don't have to do this. Nope, Jesus is the world's greatest accountant. So I want God to fill my house. I want his son Jesus to fill my house. And I want his marvelous Holy Spirit to fill my life and my house as well as I think about my life showing the godly characteristics that I am claiming so that my life might be clarified as being living for God. The Holy Spirit is the great comforter. In John chapter 15 and verse number 26, Jesus says that I must go back to the Father. I've got to go back to the Father, but when I go, then rest assured that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit's going to come in my place. Now the Holy Spirit is going to be that one who is going to be the great guide to the apostles as they are able to be guided into all truth. John chapter 16 and verse number 13. The Holy Spirit is that which is given to be the necessary means of bringing God's plan into completion. Because if you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, then we know that the scriptures are of no private interpretation. Man never came up with the idea of, oh, I think I'll write this book, or I think I'll write this about this person, or I'll demand this of human beings. No, the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all truth. How does that benefit you and me? Well, I know when the church first came into existence in Acts chapter 2, and you look at verse 42, that the church was continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, 
fellowship, and prayers. Those four things they were continuing to do. Well, how did the apostles get their doctrine? The Holy Spirit guided them into the teachings. And as they wrote, spoke and wrote by guidance of the Holy Spirit, it was carrying them along and it was bringing them to the point where they could write for us what God would have us know and God would have us do. So as I think about the Holy Spirit, I want all the comfort the Holy Spirit can biblically provide. I want all the guidance that the Holy Spirit through the Word of God can provide unto me. I want every aspect of that. And I want that to fill my house. But then, I want the Bible. Number four, as we think about living godly lives in an ungodly world, I want the Bible to fill my house. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we know that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and that it is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We know that the word of God is inspired. What does inspired mean? Breathed out of God. Folks, when I turn my attention to the Bible, it's as if I'm reading whose mind? The mind of God. And I'm able to read that, and I'm able to understand what he would have me to do, and I'm able to uh, live my life accordingly as I understand and follow the inspired Word of God. But I also want the Word of God because I am to receive the Word of God with meekness. James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Therefore receive with meekness the engrafted Word because the Word has the power to save my soul. You remember yesterday in our Bible class, I believe it was, I was making the point to those of us in the room that the most valuable thing we possess, we've never seen. And that's our soul. And the Word of God has the power to save it. When I think about the Bible, I want it to be that which fills my house. I want it to fill my spiritual house. Because I don't want my house to be left what? Empty. Now, folks, we can fill it with all manner of things. We can fill it with things that are eventually just destined to ruin. They're just going to be things that are going to be inconsequential. They're not going to be worth two cents in some point in time. Now, there's nothing wrong with having nice things in our home physically. But we need to make sure that our spiritual house is filled. And there's a fifth thing that I want to fill my house. We've had God, Jesus. We've had the Holy Spirit. We've had the Bible. And the fifth thing that I want to fill my house is I want the brethren to fill my house. God gave us the church for a purpose. Not only is it the spiritual body of his son Jesus, but folks, he knew we needed good people in our life. We needed the church. We need one another. 
And I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and I want to pick up our reading in verse number 10. 1 John 3, verse 10, let's read through verse 14. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Go back now. Remember John 8, 44? You are of your father, the devil. Jesus knows to whom we belong. John says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the, big, from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So now as we notice these verses, there are some things that we set out at the first that I hope come to your mind as we look at these verses and bring our thoughts to a close. Number one, as we think about the points we were making, God knows to whom we belong. And God is crystal clear on that. But Jesus also in John 8 sets himself forth as the light of the world. He is the one who provides salvation. If you believe in me, you're going to be saved. Now I'm using believe and understanding believe in the fullest sense in which the Bible would present it. You believe in me, you will be saved. Jesus is also the one, as we notice from John 8 and verse number 58, he is the one who is the divine son of God. And because he's the divine son of the God, he could promise us that we could know the truth, we could be free from sin, and if he frees us, we're free indeed. So we are those who are now identifying, if you go back to verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? When we love the brethren. Now, folks, there are nine grandkids in East Texas. And there's not a question in my mind that I love them. And I cannot have them in my home enough. Now, if I claim to love my brethren, which is a sign of moving from death to life, or vice versa, if I'm not practicing brotherly love, then that's an area that I need to improve in my house. I need to make sure that my brethren know that I what? Love them. Now love does not mean I'm condoning. Those grandchildren, they come over, and I know oftentimes my children will look at me and they wonder, where did daddy go? We would have never gotten away with that. Well, that's my own human 
being nature, fault, or whatever it is, I just think it's maturity, growth. Just because they do something, the world's not going to come to an end tomorrow, which I didn't think that when my kids were growing up. But the reality is, as we deal with the Heavenly Father, who is absolutely what? Perfect. And he has no grandchildren. He just has what? Children. And he loves us all the same. And I particularly like the thought in closing on John 8, 44, where in that verse, Jesus clearly reveals, I truly and fully understand to whom you belong. A lot of times our vision can get kind of cloudy, can it? It gets kind of distorted. I can remember my father passed away in 2005. Kind of seems shocking to me when I say that because that's been almost 20 years ago. But daddy, in the last few years of his life, he had Alzheimer's. And if he said this once when I walked into the room, he would say it a hundred times. Are you one of mine? Alzheimer's had so racked him he didn't know that I was even his son. And so I would sit down and I would explain to him and I'd say, Yes, Dad, I'm yours. I'm Carl Wayne. I'm number two. I'm right under Deborah Ann. And for a moment you'd see maybe a little click of recognition. But about 30 seconds later, what was the next question he was asking? Are you one of mine? My father had a reason for asking that question. He didn't know. God don't have to, doesn't have to ask that question. He already knows it. Are you one of mine? Has your godly life, is your godly life clarifying? I am one of yours. I have named the name of Christ and I have not abandoned it. I've had my house. It's been cleaned. It's been swept. It's been made pure. And now I have filled it with whom? With God. With Jesus. The Holy Spirit. With the Bible. With love of my brethren. And yes, if God was to ask us the question tonight, are you one of mine? And we let him answer it what would that answer be? If we let him ask and answer his own question, what would the answer be? I trust that by the sacrifice that y'all have made tonight, that if he were to ask that question of all of us tonight, that he would answer that question affirmatively on our behalf. Yes, you are one of mine, and I love you dearly. Brethren, if you're here and you can't have that stated about your spiritual house, how you're living, if your godly life is not clear but murky, why not clear that all up tonight? Do those things that you need to do so that when you leave this building tonight, you can say, I am one of God's Dear children, if you're a member of the church and that describes you, then we're going to have an invitation, and if you need to respond, you're certainly encouraged to do so.
But if you're one of the younger ones sitting in the audience and you're at that age where you're contemplating obeying the gospel, as our brother Mike stated at the outset, I hope you will. I hope you'll do that very thing tonight. Obey the gospel. And you can leave here and your house will be what? Clean, swept, pure, right. And then you begin the process of what? Filling it up. Filling it up with things that are goodly, godly and things that are right. So whatever your need might be tonight, let it be known as we stand and as we sing.